Today's show is sponsored by The Wandering Owl. TheWanderingOwl.com Imagine yourself under a starry sky, around the warm glow of the sacred fire, as your hosts Sarenth Odinson and James Stovall talk about shamanism, animism, books, science, psychology, pop culture, and more. Won't you come and join us around Grandfather Fire? Hail sons and daughters of Niflheim, hail to ice itself. Hail Jokul, hail Snare, hail Ymir. Hail, icy ones, we feel your breath. We feel you in the air, in the ground, all around us. And we honor you in this dark time, this cold time. We hear the hooves, the white hunt beating on the powdered snow, on the frozen ground, on the muck of our frozen cold forests. We feel the shivers of anticipation of warm fires and warm cider, of good company and cheer. And we thank you for the reminders of past harvests. We thank you for the reminders of fellowship and care for one another. Hail to you, O icy ones, O cold ones, O shivering ones, you who were the ones that made the foundations of the world that we live in now possible, as surely as the fire that helped you melt make our first rivers. So hail to you, elder ancestor. Hail to you, ice itself. Festuhail. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Around Grandfather Fire. You're listening to episode number 10. My name is James Stovall, and I am joined by my good friend and co-host, Sarenth Odinson. How are you doing tonight, Sarenth? I'm good. I'm very good. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in tonight. If you're, if you're not already listening through the Anchor app, find us there. That's our home base, Anchor FM or the Anchor app, and you can leave us voicemails on that. But no matter where you're listening tonight, if you're listening on Google, Stitcher, iTunes, wherever you're at, leave us a good rating, leave us some good reviews, and please share the show with us tonight. And share it with everybody that you know so we can help get the word out. And uh, you can find myself and Sarenth online. You can find Sarenth at uh, WordPress, at Sarenth, on Twitter, at Sarenth. And myself, you can find on Twitter, at James, at The Owl, or on WordPress, um, you can also find me on Instagram at Wandering White Hat, where you're going to see all kinds of images that I post up, like for comic books and other things like that. So thank you, everybody, for joining us again tonight. So, Sarah, oh, man, what a great night we're having. How about it? Oh, man. It's it's a good evening. I've just warmed up a little bit with a whiskey, and I've got a nice wool blanket on my feet. I'm not usually the one that gets cold in the house, so no, you know it's starting not. to get that chilly. really unusual. And then mostly right now is just my feet. The rest of me, I'm sweating. So yay for opposite day. <laughs> so how about you? Oh, doing how are you pretty doing? good. Doing pretty good. Had a had a decent day at work. I've got a short week this week, or I, I should nice. say that it's a it's a full week this week. But I'm anticipating the week off next week. I get a a week off from one of my jobs. 
So I'm only working one job next week, which is, is really unusual. I've been uh, working on scheduling some guests for our show for upcoming episodes. So I don't know. It's been a pretty good day. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to some of these guests we have that are lined up. And uh, yeah, I, I'm kind of right there with you. Um, the the my my four days started yesterday. Nice. So, yeah, yeah. I had uh, had my birthday off, and the the birthday went really well. Oh and yeah, I, happy birthday to you! Thank Another you. year older. Oh, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Are you feeling a year wiser? That's the question. Uh, sure. We'll call it that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's so funny because uh, you, know, you think about how long you've been doing something, and I've been part of the pagan community for about 14 years now, and it's just like, wow, I'm so very different from how I was back in 04 when I started. Right? I know that feeling. Uh, 14 years, oh my gods. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's so funny. Yeah, I, I, hmm, go ahead. Oh, there's just all kinds of things that dovetail together that I, I – actually, when I was looking through some of our show notes, I was looking – for a prayer that I had written a while ago. And I happened across doing a search on my Google Docs. I ran across a poem that I wrote and it was for a, a, a sister in arms, a sister in the practice uh, named Margot who passed away. And I, it kind of freaked me out a little bit. I, I love Margot. I miss her. She's one of the few people that are not directly blood related that are on my ancestor altar, but this poem was dated 2013 and it just really sent me into flashbacks about how long I've been doing this and what part of the community I've been for, for how long I know it was just kind of caught me off guard a little bit. Wow. That's yeah. 2013 was fun. You ever just like, yeah, you ever have to just take stock and go, Oh my gosh, that was actually five years ago. Right. Yeah, exactly. And you know, in some ways it's just, it's like yesterday, but that, but the reason why that, called back mm -hmm. to me so much is because Margot was part of the way back in the AOL chat room days there was a community of us called the Ravens Guild and we were I mean we were dark pagans before dark pagans were cool you know what I mean we were like mm -hmm. we were the original angsty gothic pagans and <laughs> so <laughs> so like this is like massive throwback to those days when we were in those AOL chat rooms and uh, talking about how difficult it was to work with with some of the light workers and why this is weird sarah think about this back when we were doing that in this group we could not figure out why more people were not working with underworld deities why people were afraid of odin why they were afraid of hades all this other things now we've come so full circle that you can't hardly turn around without someone working with an underworld or a dark deity i mean it's 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 such a weird uh, switch now that uh, it, it's funny that we had this full circle come in this group where we had to start working with some of the the lighter quote unquote deities because the the tides had turned so much the balance had shifted so much that people were starting to work with dark deities so much that we had to actually kind of flip our own switches a little bit now how how's that for a full journey oh that's wild I wow <laughs> <laughs> right. I think it's funny because like I, I came in towards I think the tail end of of the oh no dark gods thing because like I said I, I became a pagan in about oh four so you guys probably got to watch the crest of that and I, I can only imagine what that was like was all of a sudden now dark gods are in vogue quote unquote dark gods um 
and now they're all in vogue and, and everybody's working with them or the, the shift between, you know, um, general neo-paganism or Wiccan flavored paganism to now everybody's kind of gone into different camps again. Yeah, my, my sister there, sister in spirit, Margot, she and I were the only ones working with Veles, who at the time, you know, Slavic underworld deity. And then you've got other people that were like the original people I ever knew that worked with the, the Morrigan. And so now, you know, once again, like, like I said, the Morrigan, she's in a lot of places and, you know, bless her for mm-hmm. being all those different places. I'm, I'm glad to see that community expanding so much. But back in the day, that was like what you work with the morgan are you crazy that kind of thing so man come full circle yeah can you talk about that a bit because i I mean i've seen things from my perspective switch from like well ancestor practice during the time that i've been a pagan has become a big thing right yeah definitely from from when i started like barely anybody did it to now it's you throw now a stone at yeah, I, know. I yeah. feel like I feel like as far as on podcasts and stuff, you and I were some of the first people talking about ancestor work and now mm-hmm. now it's really pervasive in the in the pagan and neo pagan community. I feel like you and I really we were talking about that along with other people that were right on that, that front end of it before a lot of others were. Yeah, it's very true. Yeah, because uh, I think that I think that started to break well about two thousand eight nine, somewhere in there and I think the ancestors have really broken through as being a vital part of people's practices now, but it, it was really interesting seeing that shift from people going, I don't talk to the ancestors. They're all Christian. I have nothing to do with them too. Well, occasionally I'll, I'll talk with an ancestor and I'll, I'll leave out an offering for one of the saints that my ancestors used to work with. And <laughs> it's become such a, a different thing now. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, that's similar to how it was back in the day, because we're working with, like I said, the Morrigan, with Veles, with uh, even Ares, with Eris, with some of these other entities, other spirits that were so big and so so dark by conventional wisdom. And so it was really um, straight. I mean, like, there would be, like, fights online. Like, you could not... You could not... Um, get onto a, a chat room or a forum or a community without being told that we were essentially doing things wrong. And we would always, you know, we we're fighting the fight that you got to have that balance. Um, one of those old time members of that group that's gone now, he was the only person I knew that actually had organized a pagan militia because it was the concept that there sometimes there has to be violence and sometimes you have to be prepared for that. And, and so it was, it was so strange back in those days because we really, we would get shouted down in rooms for, for uh, talking about some of the underworld or darker deities. I mean, about as dark as you would want to get is Hecate. And, you know, not saying that that's not dark per se, but, um, you know, a lot of the people, they only wanted to work with, with Isis or with uh, Aphrodite, which we all know is actually, she can be fairly dark in her own right. But I mean, back in right. the day, that was the only people, the only spirits that people wanted to work with. And uh, just even the concept of working with Loki or some of the Jotun, it was like, it was, I mean, you really thought like, it really felt sometimes like we were getting just shouted down everywhere that we went, that we were so awful for doing these things. Wow. So even even back then, the Loki hate was pretty strong. Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Because, you know, 
back then we didn't at least now there's a little bit of a cushion i mean for good or for ill all that all that stuff in pop culture acts as a little bit of a cushion in some ways um but back then that wasn't there so you guys got a lot of raw unfiltered stuff just coming right at you out of the gate whereas now we've got actual organized groups and communities where these kinds of things are are not only accepted they're normalized yeah, you know, it's kind of weird. So, like, you know, like I said, coming full circle, coming around the other side of mm-hmm. it. Um, and I know there's still people out there that are that are that are light workers that are on the the fluffy new agey sort of side, and nothing nothing against that anymore. I used to maybe hold that a little bit into into a little bit more contempt than I do now. But like, uh, we've now come so full circle that. I work with a lot more lighter and upper world, uh, for lack of a better term, entities than I than I ever did before because uh, we've come to that point where I need that balance the other way. And that, I don't know, that's just kind of what surprises me sometimes. Yeah, I mean, just listening to you talk and thinking about my own experiences, I think that as I've gone through my, my practice and how things have shifted around and changed, I think one of the big things that I've noticed coming into a lot of the pagan communities is more nuance. You know, it's not just light and dark gods. It's, you know, well, not just their placement on whatever proverbial world tree they're at. You know, it's people are taking more into context as to who we're working with and what we're talking about. Because, you know, back when it might have been, you know, oh, well, Odin's at the top of the tree. And therefore, you know, Asgard is this wonderful bright magic healing place and it's all white light and it's like no 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 read read, read the myths <laughs> you yeah. can be a dick no you're you're absolutely right it, it was it was definitely like that to a, a large degree and um yeah nuance is a great way of putting it i think there is a ton more nuance than there used to be and i think that's all to the good i mean because uh some, some of the older books that i've read whether it's um Dion Fortune or uh, Crowley or even more recently Cunningham, there was a very big black and white divide on a lot of these issues where now it's kind of like we can talk about Crowley as, yes, he's uh, he's not only the guy that wrote, you know, Libra Al, and, and, but he's also the dude that wrote Diary of a Drug Fiend, and this may not be the best person to emulate in your magical practice, and here's why. Yeah. <laughs> Let's have Sarah, I'm not even going to lie to you. It was so weird back then sometimes, and, and I'm sure there's other people that have been around the community a while that can verify this, but there were certain points in time where it was even somewhat frowned upon to give quote-unquote negative divinations. Like, you were always supposed to couch your terms in the in the positive, in the way that things could manifest in a good way. And if you were, like, seeing negative things about world events or someone's life or something like that, it was, it was kind of frowned upon to even talk about that openly. What? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm not <laughs> lying to you. I'm not lying to you. Now, okay, so understand some of the context, right? You have to understand some of the context because we're talking about we're talking about the the late eighties, early nineties, right? So we're still as a society um, rolling right out of the satanic panic, right? So we are still in a society that is really afraid of dark things. And divination in general was kind of a scary, sort of frowned upon sort of thing sometimes. So you didn't want to 
scare people really badly with this divination stuff, right? And likewise, working with underworld deities, we're talking about a time where psychologists were convincing people that they were having these huge satanic cults that were taking babies in at daycares and doing all this crazy stuff and your schools weren't safe and all these other things. And so to be a certain level of public about working with underworld or dark deities, that, I mean, that's all part and parcel, right? So you have to consider that sort of context. When people were afraid of it more, of course it was more unusual to to work with those sorts of things, right? So it all falls within that context. Yeah, I guess, wow. There's, I mean, there's a lot there that, I just didn't grow up with in the community with. I mean, like I said, 04, you know, satanic panic and the D&D panics were well and truly over by the time I even, like, laid eyes on paganism. Right, right. And like I say, you know, I, I joke about the AOL chat rooms, but this was the first time besides bulletin boards that that pagans were able to communicate, right? And so, like, you went, you rolled from that panic sort of time right into with the the era of AOL, you rolled right into like the first craft movie and things like that. And so the interest level started to change and then you got a huge influx of people. And with that influx of people started to build up some of your diversity. It it was, uh, I don't know, it was really kind of an amazing time because there was a lot of growth and a lot of potential, but there was also a lot of nobody knew enough. I mean, like, you had the Green Aid magazine, and so you had a few elders that you could read about, and you could read some of their articles and that sort of thing. But to really have time with elders was really very difficult, because it was very difficult to even find people. And so you were counting on this brand new internet thing. And growing up now, or being around now, we know how bad the information on the internet is. But back then... If it was on a web page, it was pretty close to gospel because other than a few Llewellyn books, that was probably all you were going to be able to find information-wise. Yeah, this is, I mean, you're talking about a time, well, Red Wheel or Wiser Publishing hadn't really made it big yet. Yeah, exactly. Back- I mean, all you could find is is some Llewellyn books. I mean, that was pretty much mostly what you could find. Now, you could right away, um, like I would send off to New York City for for books that you could find advertised in the back of the green egg, or you'd find a, a listing about it somewhere. And I'd send off my little cashier's check and hope that the, the book came back. Um, found some really good books that way, actually. But, um, you know, so it was just a completely different sort of age. Well, when did you start? I guess this is also a pretty big growth factor. And I hadn't really like given thought to it till just now. When did you start seeing the growth of pagan conventions? Hmm, that's a hard one. See, I'm I'm not as much of a convention type person. So like my mentor, Mateo, she used to go to a convocation. She was with the convocation staff from the, from the, or one of the, the people around the beginning of convocation from the very beginning, right? She was there the first few years and she knew everybody on the staff and that sort of thing. But that was never really my scene. So, you know, honestly, my first convention exposure to paganism was actually Confusion, which was a science fiction convention because they had they had filkers and they had uh, 
little pagan gatherings in some of the rooms, and they would have a Sunday morning service, which was more pagan and Wiccan-oriented. So as far as convention scene and actually meeting more people face-to-face, for me, it happened at science fiction conventions as opposed to like a pagan or neo-pagan convention. Gotcha. Okay. That makes sense. Because I know for me, um, barring a better term, growing up pagan, uh, the convention scene was actually a pretty big growth period for me. Because um, I think I went to my first con in 06, 07. And so I'd only been a pagan for two or three years. And so, you know, and I've been going more or less every year. And convocation has been one of those big ones every year that I, I, I do my utter best to go to. And so it's been a big part of growing up pagan. Um, that's been a huge part of it for me. And it's really interesting to think about a time where your bulletin board systems and your AOL chats, the only outlets where you're going to be able to talk about any of that. And like you said, Green Egg. And Green Egg's been around since, what, the 70s? Yeah. And they went defunct sometime around 04, 05. They stopped printing the print version at that time. It's wild to think about all the the big changes of convention because, like you mentioned, with – uh, the sci-fi conventions being a big gathering point. And now we've got our, our own special conventions <laughs> and we're not taking uh, other spaces up as much as like for meetings, meeting spaces. So I find that really a fascinating movement. Right. I think my first, uh, I'm looking through the list of them right now. I think the, the con where I really got introduced a lot to other public pagans. And like I said, I was fairly late to this whole phenomenon and that would have been uh, Confusion of the Winnebago's, which would have been 1998. Huh. Wow. Yeah, and in uh, the Detroit scene, I don't think uh, Convocation really struck above a thousand members until relatively, uh, attendees, excuse me, until relatively recently. In the last uh, five, six years, I want to say. And that's just, that's an amazing shift. Just in that alone. Yeah, it really Because like you said, Sunday service from to a, a three, four day event. Was there a bit of a culture shock that you experienced when you started doing things in conventions, like for instance, coming to Michigan pagan fest, was there a bit of a, well, you know, you went from this very decentralized to a more centralized community focus. Um, I would say to a certain degree. Yeah. Because the, uh, exposure I'd had to larger group gatherings were all ones, you know, when I say larger group gathering, we're talking, you know, we might have got a whopping eight or ten people at one of my teacher's fire ceremonies. That was that was a bigger group, you know what I mean? And so coming to the first uh, festivals and conventions and that sort of thing, yeah, it was quite the culture shock. Um, Pagan Fest, I think, was, um, I'd been to con, uh convocation before that but pagan fest really i don't know pagan fest always does feel a lot more comfortable to me i mean nothing wrong with convocation by any means i uh, it's a it's a phenomenal event but it's the outdoors part of of pagan fest that i like and so it, it fit a lot better with me yeah i think uh three pagans and a cats uh i think it was ode who put it that uh the Convocation is more like a business meeting, and Michigan Pagan Fest is like a family gathering. Yeah, yeah, it's the, those family gatherings that you have at somebody's uh, campground or RV park or something. Some, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's one of those sort of things. 
Yeah, I could I could definitely agree with that. <laughs> Especially with four days of sitting around the fire and, and hanging out, you know, you, everything smells like wood smoke by the end. Yeah, I right. love that. And you're right, love complication, complication. That's a good way of putting it. It's a lot more, uh, a lot more formal. But I mean, that's uh, that's okay. That's kind of their intent. I mean, it is the uh, magical education group that puts it on. So, mm-hmm. uh, the uh, it would make sense that it has more of a, a formalized and and focus to it than than uh, pagan fest does. Mm. So, oh man. There's so a, much I want to pick your brain about. <laughs> <laughs> it was a long, I feel like I'm wandering down amnesia lane here. No, this is, it's interesting. I don't think about some of these things very often because a lot of the times my path is just, you know, it's whatever I'm doing at the time. I don't, I don't stop and get retrospective very much. But I, I find it fascinating because I came, you know, you've been in the pagan scene for far longer than I have. And you've got to watch it shift in some really dynamic ways that I never was privy to. I mean, you, you got to watch it, like you said, through the satanic panic, through on until where we're at today. I guess my, my one of my big questions for that, for you, is is what has been one of the biggest shifts that you've been welcome to, to watch happen, or you've been part of? Um, boy, you know, I think, honestly, for all of its growth problems and difficulties, I think that I really appreciate... Um, the growth of polytheism within the pagan community or alongside of the pagan community because for so long it was very Wiccan focused which is neither good nor bad it just is that's how it happened and and I'm fine with that but I really enjoy some of the the recreation the personal gnosis that's going on I really enjoy the fact that ancestors and animism and polytheism are becoming such a strong part of this journey it's such a strong option for so many people now that it just wasn't there before so much of what happened before with deities I mean at a certain point in time uh, even polytheism Although everybody said we were polytheistic, there was this undercurrent of how it all fits into the greater God and Goddess Wicca sort of paradigm. So um, seeing that branch off and recognizing that these spirits exist as independent beings that are not necessarily part of the the Wiccan way of looking at the world, I find uh, very welcoming. It, It made a lot more sense for me. Did, did you find your relationships changing accordingly or, or were you kind of already there and there were aspects of the community that were kind of playing, not catch up, but kind of catching on to the idea, if you will, that, that these are differentiated beings? Um, I think I arrived there a little bit sooner than some of the rest of the community um, because, like I said, we were part of that that quote-unquote dark group and so we tended to look at things a little differently anyway and um so yeah i think maybe i arrived at that a little bit sooner but like i said it's hard to say because a lot of you know there might have been a lot of people that are actually in the detroit area or ann arbor area that arrived at this stuff faster than i did 
but mm. my exposure to them was fairly limited to the online sphere. So that's a lot greater numbers, but the depth wasn't necessarily there. So, you know, it's not like I was a huge pioneer or something. It's just the times that I lived in. Well, that makes sense. I mean, um, especially because you saw a, the, the in the last, say, 20 years, you went from Llewellyn being the number one source of information to all of a sudden you had uh, multiple imprints and you had Red Wheel Wiser really take off. You had Emanion Press take off and then you had small press like Asphodel Press take off. So that's, it's been, I think, at least in the time that I've been around, even in the last you know 14 years or so, there's been this great liftoff of suddenly everybody having more access to publishing and being able to get their words out. Well, yeah, and, and when you factor in things like WordPress or podcasts like we're doing or YouTube videos, those were huge phase, uh, changers too because it's, you know, it's interesting to me that when you uh, read words sometimes, you don't know if you're connecting with that person well or not. And hearing their voice or seeing their face adds a lot of credibility sometimes or sometimes reduces that credibility. And so I think the mm-hmm. technology shifts were a huge factor in, in the growth and the shaping and changing of the community. Yeah. Oof. I, I'm, I'm thinking right now just uh, looking at some of the stuff on our <laughs> on our uh, our topic notes and stuff, just how how our narratives and how our overall approach to things has changed in the last 10 or so years, even because uh, Facebook came out around what? Oh, six, Oh seven, Oh eight, somewhere in there and really got big at that point. And that's had a, a huge ripple effect right, in how right. our, our community talks to itself. Yeah, exactly. Um, the, the groups I was part of, we, uh, later on, they, we, we had a big discussion about, when do we switch over from being primarily email-based to MySpace? And then right about the time we were making some of those decisions, it was like, hey, maybe we ought to join this Facebook thing, too. Oh, interesting. So you guys were kind of like on that cutting edge of of how do we have these conversations even? Right. I, I wouldn't say we're, you know, we weren't on the cutting edge of, of Facebook or anything like that, but it was still... It, it, forced a conversation within our group of where are we going to find the people that need to hear our voices? Yeah, that's more what I was I was aiming toward. Not so much that you were like the only ones having this really cutting edge, you know, conversion experience to Facebook or what have you, but more like you, you guys had to wrestle with platforming and where you guys were going to go in, in a way that I think we're just starting to see now with the way that Tumblr is um, essentially shutting itself down. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, now that we've got a Tumblr page, there goes Tumblr. Look what we did. Right? It's all our fault. It's all our fault. <laughs> no, but, but. There, that is an interesting point because um, uh, for the longest time, this group that I'm, t- I'm speaking of, a lot of our communication was done through uh, interconnected blogs. It was done through... Uh, um, well, there was a version of Live Journal called Dark Journal. We were on that for a while. We had interconnected Live Journal pages. That was where a lot of our communication was done. You know, someone post up their comments and we would make uh, uh, their thoughts and we would make comments on it and that sort of thing. And uh, that was, it was kind of went from, 
uh, AOL to a lot of link journals in our case, and then uh, AOL started to fade, and that's when we started to get into the group's still around. There's just a lot fewer members now. A lot of the original old guard are gone, but there's a few of us floating around on Facebook still. That makes sense because I mean, one of the things that's been really interesting watching Heathenry develop has been a lot of the a lot of it was on email list serves, and I mean, when it really started off, it was you know back in the seventies with physical mailing lists and things yeah, like that. Yeah, right, exactly. Now, now it's gone to well, we're on email um, alerts and things like that, interconnected blogs. But one of the things that's been really fascinating in the last couple of years is watching um, us float from between Facebook, Reddit, and now Discord as ways of having conversations like long form conversations. You might go to Reddit or to your WordPress blog, but for quick feedback, for quick conversations, for, for more, sometimes more in depth conversations, one-on-one time, you'll go to discord or something and hit people up on that. Yeah. It's funny. You know, the, like you're saying back in the old times, cause like I said, there was green egg and I'll tell you, I learned so much from green egg and not only the the magazine itself but like so the conversations would even take so much longer like someone would write an article and it had some really interesting thoughts to it and i swear to you there was time sarinth where the the response in your head was oh my god i can't wait till next month for the letters column to see what isaac bonwitz thinks about this because that was like the time frame, right? You, mm-hmm. you read an article and a month later you'd get some pagan elders commenting on that article from a month ago. That was the way the conversations and some of the learning went. It took a while. I would say there's a, there's a bit of an advantage to that, though, because Green Egg was at that point, it was basically the curator. Yeah, right, right. And there was, you know, uh, as opposed to everybody joining in and and talking over each other, there's. It sounds like there was uh, some quality control because, well, <laughs> whether or not you looked at the green because quality control depends on your personal perspective. Because I never read it. That really sexy um, artwork. I'll give you that much. <laughs> <laughs> I was a much younger man then. Ah, gotcha. Um, but I, I think it's interesting because. Uh, We've gone from from Green Egg being like the pagan magazine to, especially lately, you know, we, uh, Sage Woman and Witches and Pagans, and then a revival of Green Egg recently. But the way we have these conversations has really sped up, and oh, so yeah, we're having real time conversations every time one of these publications comes out. Right. You look what happens from like a Wild Hunt article or something, and all of a sudden, you know, the blogosphere lights up, and there's conversations mm-hmm. all over the place. Actually, that's a pretty good segue point. Do you want to you want to uh, pivot a little bit on that? Sure, sure. Let's do that. So, one of the things we we had uh, slated for today's show that we're going to talking about um, was the recent Wild Hunt article uh, responding to a New York Times op-ed by uh, Ross Duthot. I think that's how you say his name. Um, and the column in question. Uh, is the return of paganism. Now, Ross Duthot, just for a little bit of background info, has written as an op-ed for the New York Times for a while yet, and I believe wrote for the Atlantic previous to. And I believe he comes out of primarily a Catholic perspective, and before that he was Pentecostal. So he's not exactly the most amenable to our views anyway, but it's been interesting watching the back and forth. 
Yeah, definitely. Uh, it was quite the article, and and I don't know if anyone. I, I will I will put a link in the show notes to the New York Times article, and the uh, Wild Hunt. We have at least one good response to it, but uh, it was kind of an interesting article. I I don't know. What do you think, Sarah? I it is my opinion when I read through this. This guy is is fairly thoughtful, but he definitely gets some things wrong about the the pagan community and what's happening to Christianity. But the the thing that strikes me the most about reading this article is how much he might not realize he's coming from a place of fear. Yeah, I mean, wow. His his whole shtick is like, it reads to me like, oh, society's crumbling, <laughs> right? Because <laughs> obviously, no pagans, the helm. And, pagans and Wiccans have no moral center. I mean, <laughs> he gets so much wrong. That you have to kind of <laughs> have to kind of pick apart where he's actually coming from because he gets so much wrong about the modern pagan religions and movements, right? Um. I think I think the most egregious is to me is that he he confuses the pagan movement and the things that are going on with paganism with a lot of the white light new age stuff that you see and and granted it's even hard for people within those communities to see those distinctions sometimes so I can't hold them at fault for that but reading through it it's I'm sorry people just because we are, are pagans and Wiccans does not mean we automatically follow every word of Oprah Winfrey. Right. Like there's this, this line in here that I really like, uh, that he, he has this called there's come to a point at which a heresy becomes simply post-Christian a moment when you should just believe people who claim they have left the biblical world picture behind a context where the new spiritual spiritualities add up to a new religion. And I think that his, his inability to parse, between the spiritualities and religions bit like religion is, is a way that we organize how spirituality is lived. And I think that he, he really gets the narrative like really wrong headed here. Um, and his continuous point is like, uh, the caption underneath that particular quote is institutional Christianity has weakened drastically since the 1960s. Um, he's not entirely wrong, but I think that his his diagnosis here is kind of is is actually quite off, because Christianity's done a handy job shooting itself square in the foot uh, on a number of, of levels. Um, whether it's we talk about the Catholic Christianity that I I think Ross Duthot is, or we talk about the Pentecostal movement out of which he eventually came, you know, there, there's a lot to pick through here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think you're right. I think this to me definitely reads more like somebody watching their privilege slipping away and the primacy of place of Christianity slipping away than it has anything to say more about, you know, the moral degradation of society or whatever. Right. Well, here's here's what I'm taking out of a lot of this is mm-hmm. um, just like we were talking about the, the earlier days of, of paganism and Wiccanism, uh, the... It is hard sometimes to leave a context behind, right? So, of course, in his mind, he is going to think that uh, that paganism and, and is just rejecting of Christianity. 
And that's something that our own communities has struggled with over the years. And we as individuals, probably, as you come into paganism or polytheism, have struggled with. Uh, you get to a point where mm-hmm. you're wrestling with the fact that you're, you are not just anti-Christian. And so he's struggling with that as well. He really, he just cannot understand a viewpoint where there's a paganism or polytheism that's not just a rejection of communi- uh, of of Christianity. So that's the only way he can write from. So while it's an obvious flaw in his writings, there's part of me that really recognizes that I can't hold that against him. Yeah, I mean, he's clearly writing, and I, I appreciate that it's an op-ed, not an actual, like, full-blown article where we're supposed to glean some kind right, of new information right. from um, because we we wouldn't be. I mean, the thing the, the the thing that I take away from it though is that this is actually a fairly predominant viewpoint of a lot of Christians that they're losing their country because this this rise of the new paganism and you know I've seen it capitalized like new paganism NP, um, and it's it's kind of you know from the outside looking in for a lot of people, it's really funny. Like, what are you worried about? We can hardly agree on theology, but do thought really puts his words together in such a way that anybody who's looking at this from outside the Christian communities can understand like they're losing their hegemony and that is frightening to them. Well, and I think in some ways there's, um, there's more than that in some Mm -hmm. ways. Like the way that I'm looking at this is, is, uh, do thought in his original his original article um, what he's struggling with and what a lot of Christians are struggling with is the that polytheism that animism uh, he even says in his article it's an acceptance of the spirit in the here and now that the world around us is all part of spirit and that there is spirit through all things and that the creator is not some separate entity from afar that was just a, a, a separate creator, that we are actually living in creator. We're living in creation. And I think that's where polytheism and animism are getting a lot of their growth from because especially if we look at things from a perspective of we're, we're killing this place that we live in. We are killing our ability to live here. We are, we are destroying the ability of future generations. The only way that we can correct that on a spiritual level is by understanding this animistic, polytheistic, um, living spirit that we are part of where that is a very much of a threat to someone who comes from a a Christian worldview because they've always been taught that the here and the now is the trial. It belongs to the devil. It's part of the evil. And so underlining all of their thoughts, whether they still remember those lessons actively or not, is this thought that this world is a terrible, awful place, and we shouldn't necessarily worry about striving to make it better. We just need to hurry up and have it end. And so there's a fundamental threat there for them, for people who want to make this place better and live in it and accept it for what it is. And I don't know if he recognizes that or not. No, I mean that's that's part and parcel of the kind of 
stewardship apocalypse narrative that that runs through most monotheism, pretty much all of it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we're all familiar with these various cults that are trying to bring about the end of the world or looking for the apocalypse or whatever. And, you know, and that does kind of creep into sometimes in some of our polytheisms as well, whether those are holdovers or influences by early Christian missionaries that have, have put their own narrative on the myths or whatever. We can We can bypass that a little bit. But the mm-hmm. fact is these are dynamically different worldviews. And, and that's, yeah, I mean, they're seeing their worldview is, is failing over time. And I, we always, we've always chuckled about, chuckled about it, Sarah, that uh, Odin and some of the other gods are playing the long game. And, and this is kind of what it feels like to me. Yeah. And, and I think that's a, a pretty fair summation in terms of, of looking at it over the long game. Because, yeah, um, I mean, even within, you know, for those of us who think that Ragnarok is a thing and we can look at it in terms of cyclic uh, nature, um, it doesn't present the kind of imminent threat to all creation that an apocalypse does. Because if Ragnarok's going to happen, it's going to happen, and we're eventually going to go back on that wheel again and twist around to a new creation. We just kind of accept that this is a thing that happens. Right. Ragnarok brought about a new age here as well. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think that that lack of cyclicalness, that lack of and the the sheer line, linear nature of most monotheist religions, where um, oh Lord, I wish I could remember where the the quote was from, but there was somebody who who examined Christianity and other uh, monotheist religions and was like, you know, the 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 point of Christianity is that it actually intentionally places itself in a particular moment in time. You know, Christ, you know has been a, a subject of deep inquiry because he had to exist at a linear point in time in a very particular way. You know, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus of Galilee had to exist in this particular time or else the religion kind of falls apart. Um, we don't kind of, we don't really have that. We have cyclical festivals. We have cyclical death and rebirth cycles, but not like we're okay. Odin didn't make this, uh, if, we, if Odin didn't find the driftwood on this day, at this point in this BC period, the whole religion's wrong. We, there's no linearity, linear time built into the religion like that, and that is very freeing from the kinds of constrictions that you have in in monotheism. It, it is and an interesting thought, though. It makes me wonder what the difference would be right now where we're standing. If during one of those various councils of Nicaea, they hadn't changed the Christian religion to get away from the concept of reincarnation. Woof. Wow. That's a, I mean, that's, I mean, that changes a whole lot of theology and a lot of the, the, the ways that things trickle down because like the resurrection of the body was one of the big things that differentiated Christians from, uh, especially the early Christians from, from pagans who sometimes would burn their dead. Um, you know, it was one of their, their ways of, of marking them as different, you know, where we're, we're waiting for a bodily resurrection uh, as opposed to, well, burn the body. He's not going to use it. He's going to come back right. in another right. form. That's a huge, wow. That's a, that's a profound change. 
So I've got a question for you. One of the things that gets cited in this return of paganism op-ed is the fact Mm -hmm. that uh, so many more Americans especially, um, here's some things that I think he gets right. More and more people are identifying as spiritual as opposed to religious and does but he equates that as to becoming pagan but from our perspective as pagans do you think that's true no <laughs> yeah, no neither do uh, i no no because be, being you know uh, religion is the bones on which spirituality is built that's I, i've used that analogy for quite a while because religion is how you organize the understanding and theology around which those spiritual experiences take place like being more spiritual isn't on the opposite line of being more religious. Actually, in my view, if you don't have religion and you have a bunch of spiritual experiences, there's no context. Like, okay, you know, cool. So you had an experience with an angel. In what context are you having that experience? Can you verify it? Can you discern it? Right. You know, uh, Christians can have mystical, religious, and spiritual experiences, but they have methods of discernment. Like that's a that was a huge point of contention, especially in the early church fathers and the early Catholic church was, okay, well, this person had this experience. Is it actually something of the spirit? You know, and, and more recent denominations, like I'm thinking, especially Pentecostal, they have ways of discernment. Um, I, I, and to I, me, it's, yeah. I do think he's correct that a lot more people are, are falling into that spiritual, not religious mm-hmm, category. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I'm with you after years of standing behind the counter at the, the wandering owl. Um, I would agree with you that that does not equate to becoming pagan. Um, now here's an aspect that I do think he's correct in though, that mm. he is equating that, uh, I am spiritual, not a religious thing with the tendency of people to want to, shed responsibility in the modern culture oh yeah i would agree i i see a lot of that and having sat near the counter <laughs> <laughs> right been privy to some of them conversations in between and sometimes during readings uh yeah yeah that that whole well i'm spiritual not religious so i don't have to worry about that <laughs> what yeah, yeah the exactly. whole lack of consequences thing that right. often comes as a corollary yep i i, I do think he is correct in that so, and then a follow-up question there is, amongst the religious right, it's been said for many years that the emphasis in our schools on things like recycling and the ecology and things like that, we're going to lead people away from Christianity and more towards an open spirituality or paganism. Do you think that's true? Is that part of what's happened? I haven't seen anybody have a conversion experience at the recycling center. Um, <laughs> I mean, if if that's your gateway to paganism, then your Christianity was weak. Well, I'm just saying uh, that that as children are taught to think about the ecology mm-hmm. more and the environment, does that lead to the mental thought processes that lead away from this thought that, uh, um, you know, we're just a testing ground and all this is temporary and eventually it'll go away in flames and fountains and blood and things like that. <laughs> I I think that um, you could make that argument. I just don't believe it. Um, I think that you know, the easy counter argument 
to a lot of that, especially coming out of a Catholic background, was uh, works, not faith. Like, it's mm-hmm. really great and all that you have faith, but um, the the analogy or the, uh, the parable of the, the master of the three servants often came to mind when uh, I would have these conversations with my friends in school. You know, they, they'd talk about, well, you need to have faith in Jesus, or otherwise, you know, and like being a former Catholic, it was all about work, not faith, because you can have all the faith in the world, but if you have nothing to show for it, you know, you, you, congratulations, you, you dug up the pieces of silver your master handed to you and you didn't do anything useful with them. Um, I always liked that analogy as a, as a way of talking about works, not faith as a Catholic. And I think it's pretty apt because it, for, for me anyway, even as a pagan, it's, it's a way of illustrating to Christians why we have embodied relationships with the earth and everything around us. Because whether we look at the, the earth as our earth mother, you know, for instance, Yorth, or we look at the earth as a, a living being itself, we have to have good relationships with it. And the things that we grow in relationship with that earth need to have some kind of merit at the end of the day. We can't just say, you know, think happy thoughts and the earth will be all okay. And I think, I think you raise a really good point that the, that imminence can raise people's awareness and direct people away from Christianity that's more apocalyptic or more next world, that's very world-denying. I think that's a feature of a lot of Protestantism, in my experience, is that it's very this-world-denying, and it's also a Catholic thing, too, on occasion. Um, But, I mean, I came out of a Catholic education where I actually had competent sex ed. Uh, So (laughs) my experience with the sex ed that I experienced as a Catholic was way better than I ever experienced in school. Um, which was largely Protestant influenced. So even in that regard, um, I, th- I think that the world denying aspect of a lot of the Christian religions kinds of, if you never question it and all of a sudden the eminence of the world is put in front of you and you have to relate to it. Yeah. I think that that could well produce a crisis of faith, but I think it, it has to more to do with the, the lack of questioning on the, the part of the church or the part of the person than it has to do with, um, recycling or, thinking about the ecology does i think it's got more to say about the lack of theological understanding and and place in the world does that make sense yeah definitely and i I guess the last thing that he this leads into the the question of responsibility amongst the the new age and and i'm spiritual but not religious sorts and i think you'll probably have opinions on this especially based on Mm. uh, (laughs) your tradition as i do but uh, mind, but he says that some of the issues with converting over to a pagan sort of uh, post-Christian America is that right now paganism lacks a lot of the cultus and structure that it needs to carry itself and the, the country into the future successfully. If he was talking about paganism in general, I think he's absolutely nailed on the head right. Uh, it's been a gripe of mine for a long time that uh, a lot of pagan communities lack any kind of formal theology and actually eschew it. Um, I, I think that one of the things that I love about polytheism is it gives us better theological options, among among many things. Is why I like polytheism better. But uh, the very fact that you have a grounded theology in the imminent and the transcendent is a, a huge draw for me as a polytheist. And a lot of pagans are not even 
really thinking about theology. They're they're doing things, and they might be good, they might be bad, but they're not thinking about the wider scope in terms of like how this organizes their world. And that's where I find a lot of, of agreement with his statement there. I, I don't know about what about you? Yeah, no, I would I would agree with that. Um, it's very hard because. Um, by its very nature, the people that are attracted to polytheism and paganism in general, uh, we have a tendency to want to reject authority or only accept a very limited authority. Um, but that is also our downfall in the sense that you have to realize that we have, as a movement, more than enough numbers to equal and rival some of the other Christian denominations within this country. But it's our lack of organization and supporting each other financially that is really holding us back. And that reflects in our inability to hold some of our leaders accountable for their action, both political leaders and leaders within the neo-pagan and pagan community. So that lack of structure really is affecting our abilities. I mean, it's one thing to talk about... um, some of the, this is one of my long-standing gripes, that it's one of those things that it's all well and fine and good to complain about some of the politicians and what they're doing, but show me the political and financial will to organize our own political action committee to go be lobbying Congress or the governor, because it's not there. So... Mm -hmm. I think some of those things come with the structure that that a more formalized religious structures bring. So, I don't know. I I think he has points, and uh, there's things there that we need to consider. It's just um, he falls down and lacks a lot because, like I said, he has difficulty stepping outside of that that Christian worldview. I'd agree. I think... you know, we, we talk about um, native spirituality and religion quite a bit on and off through the show. I think that something that is often ignored in in conversations that people have around native sovereignty and native views on things is there is a, a really big political element. You know, some people get along really well with the tribal governments and some don't. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess my, my point here is that there's – there actually is tribal government. <laughs> like there's the, a will to organize that I don't find in a lot of, of pagan religions because um, either issues with hierarchy or issues with, with just sheer organization. It's been one of my longtime gripes as well. So I, I really feel you there. I, I think that Ross Duthot points out some, some good things that we need to consider, but for the most part it's lost in the minutia that he, and most of the details he makes are just right. Flat. Well, between between do thought and the uh, and the response that's in the wild hunt from Manny was it Treja Moreno mm-hmm. that uh, uh, 
between those two things, it definitely gives people a lot of things to chew on, a lot of stuff to consider on what our strengths and weaknesses are. And yes, if I think a lot of us kind of one of the old jokes around paganism, Tim, and uh, I'm not sure if you're uh, um, as familiar with it as I am, is that I think our worst nightmare in some ways would be pagans taking over. <laughs> yeah. Because right? a lot of aspects of the community just aren't ready for it. And so if there is a challenge that's issued by this, this, uh, editorial about a post-Christian future is if you are a pagan or a pagan leader or elder or just a community member, because we don't all have to be leaders. That's one of the big things that we need to have a discussion about is, are we mm -hmm. actually ready for those responsibilities? And that's, that's, that's a whole can of worms. We that's can get to that another episode. That's a huge can of worms, definitely. We should probably get some guests in on that one because that could be yeah. a good roundtable. I would like that, yeah, because I, I don't think I can answer that alone, and I don't even know if a roundtable could answer that sufficiently, but we should we could get some, some serious mileage out of that. I think that's something that that Mr. Duthot has, as to his credit, brings up as a very good live issue. Along with the airing of grievances, we'll do that for Festivus. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> we'll have religious leg wrestling and airing of grievances. It'll be great. Oh, my God. <laughs> We've got to do it around the pole, though. Of course. <laughs> of oh, man, course. <laughs> oh. So, uh, did we kind of want to move tracks then at that point? Yeah, I, I think uh, we've, we've done a pretty good job talking about this. There's one other smaller topic that I'd, I'd like to bring up before we we call this a show, if you don't mind. Absolutely, hit it. Um, so I wanted to talk about, and you were talking about Native American uh, cultures. Um, one of the things I wanted to bring up tonight was other podcasts that we enjoy. And our, our good friend Kelly Harrell has one uh and it's about uh, um, What in the Weird, which is about runes and rune magic. And she and three, or excuse me, two other people, uh, Janet and uh, Brandis, they have a very excellent podcast called Everyday Animism. You can find both of those here on Anchor. But one that I have really been enjoying lately that I wanted to talk to you about was one that's a... Uh, uh, CBC Canadian radio production and it's called Missing and Murdered and I stumbled across the first season of this it's hosted by an indigenous woman and the first season was about uh, a different indigenous woman that had been murdered and they were trying to make sense of the murder story itself and trying to piece together what happened and actually find who did it but the second season which is called uh, Finding Cleo is this amazing story about a Canadian indigenous family that was broken up and the children were scattered around and some of them were adopted. And one of the daughters, Cleo, ended up uh, getting adopted out to a family here in the United States. And later on, um, her life was, was ended and the family that was left scattered all over only heard bits and pieces and so this 
podcast, Missing and Murdered, Finding Cleo, was about reconstructing what happened to her and helping the family come to closure on that. But what is great about this podcast is that um, it covers so much of what happened, especially in Canada, with the older indigenous communities when they were forced to go into the residential schools and the ramifications of people coming out of those residential schools to their families. The the generation of Cleo is, is the people that uh, were raised in boarding schools and Cleo's generation were those people's children and those people, because they had been in boarding schools, they've been completely stripped of their knowledge of how, not only their culture, but how to even be a parent. And the Canadian government continued some of these problems by um, coming to, and this is no lie, a quote from a Canadian official, how to end the Indian problem by taking children and adopting them out to white families. So it's a fascinating story, but it's tragic. But you're hearing all this in their own voices and understanding what really happened to some of the indigenous communities. And it is so powerful and sad and amazing and heart-wrenching. And I can't recommend that one enough. So I'm hoping people will go and look that up. Yeah, it's, it's definitely going on my podcast list now. Um, Especially because there's so little out there in indigenous voices talking about the residential schools. And they didn't close all that long ago. No, no, they certainly didn't. I mean, the the um, generation that Cleo and her, her brothers and sisters are from in the story, they, they are my age. Um, so this is, is fairly recent. Her parents just came out of, I think, some of the um, boarding schools in Canada... They, they were only closing in 75, 76 were some of the last ones. I mean, even here in the States, it was illegal to practice Native religions till I think, 78. So this is stuff mm. that's ongoing still. They're, they're still trying to understand the ramifications to their families and cultures. Oh, that hurts. Just, just hearing that. Oh. But I, I mean... Oof. Yeah, I can't recommend it enough. It's so good, and and to to hear it in their voices, and then um, with the person that hosts the show being indigenous as well, it it just adds so much to to what's going on there. I mean, Sarah, you have to look at what's going on right now. Even still, you know, talk about things that are going on right now. We, you know, you and I, we know people that are indigenous, Native Americans that are that are great people and they uh, are having powwows and they, they have good jobs and companies and, and um, you know, they're, they're a vital part of our society. But if you even take a cursory few moments and look online what's going on in northern Michigan, what's going on in North Dakota, what's going on, and we're not even talking about water problems, we're talking about the fact that indigenous women are disappearing or being murdered at an exponentially higher rate than than their white counterparts it's horrifying what's still going on in these communities Mm -hmm. yeah the the ongoing victimization and the the lack of education is monstrous it is the i just I, I I fail for words at this, and 
I applaud the people who are speaking up and speaking out, and it needs to happen more often. Right. I mean, not being native, I always I have to consider myself an ally, which means that it's not my job to be on the front lines. However, I can mm-hmm. bring awareness with this podcast, and I can encourage all you people out there to, to listen to other podcasts, to support indigenous authors, to support indigenous uh, uh, activists as they're working. You know, there's there's uh, monies that need to be contributed to people that are fighting fighting the law in these private enterprises in the fight against pipelines. Um, you know, there's the Anishinaabe Camp 5 that's going on here in northern Michigan where they're fighting against uh, um, straits under the Mackinac. They need money for food, for shelter, for attorneys. When you've got people that are fighting out west against some of these pipelines, they, they, they need attorneys to help get them out of jail to do things like that. I mean, there are so many things that people can do to support. And so I hope everybody that hears this show um, reaches out and, you know, reach into your wallet, grab your credit card out and donate. Go to PayPal and donate. I mean, $5, $10, it all adds up. And, you know, even if all we can do is support and send money and and uh, make tobacco offerings and make prayers, we have to do that part. There's just so much still that needs to be done. Mm-hmm. We need to give the, the space for those prayers to be realized. I think that's a huge responsibility on our collective shoulders as allies, as, as people who share this land, this conquered land with native people. You know, I can't undo what white settlers did. Exactly. But I can, I can make sure that every chance I get, the future is brighter for the native peoples of these lands. Right. And if if the the people that are putting together the powwow in Brighton, if they need money to to put up a stand, if they need help carrying firewood, whatever the heck they need, the only thing I can do to be a good guest on these lands is to to help and to support and be open with my heart and my spirit. Yeah, you said it. All right. Well. (laughs) <laughs> Any other podcasts or anything that you want to mention? That's a good question. Uh, well, let's see. Uh, there's a couple of podcasts that I mentioned that I might mention. Um, now, three pagans Think and a cat, right? Yeah, that yep, was one. Three pagans and a cat. Uh, Think Indigenous is another one that I started Ooh. following recently. Um, I haven't listened to any of the episodes yet. I just picked it up not that long ago. I'm going to have to go look they have, that. Yeah, they have things like uh, the uh, story of the Anishinaabe scholar. Uh, Andrea Landry, and she shares her own personal stories on the teachings of her mother. And so there's there's all kinds of these wonderful stories that, that Native people are, are telling. And it doesn't take that long to look. You just gotta you just gotta pop it in the search engine and do a little bit of diligent research. And Think so, Indigenous podcast. So it looks mm-hmm. like it's thinkindigenous.libson.com. So you can look up that. And they haven't updated in a little bit, but. Um, I think the last episode was updated eight months ago, but that's one that I just started watching. Um, another one that I was turned on to by our friend Nicholas Haney was the Drawdown Agenda, mm. which is it talks all about Drawdown and the various issues and various efforts surrounding that. They're up to episode eight at this point. So the, the latest episode was talking about marine permaculture. 
And so there's a lot of really good podcasts out there. If you folks have suggestions for us that we might want to look into. Yes. Yeah, send them please. my way. Yeah. So, um, as far as podcasts go, that's all I can think of right now. Excellent. Yeah. No, I appreciate that. So. Well, my good friend, should we uh, wrap up and call that a show then? I think so. All I right. think so. Thank you, everybody, for joining us tonight. Um, um, Sarah, would you mind horribly? I was talking, we started off this whole conversation talking about the poem for my friend Margot that I, I dug up. Would you mind if I wrapped up with that? Please do. I'd All be honored. Right. And, Go for and it. Once again, thank you, everybody, for listening. Make sure you share the show. Uh, share us around. Give us a good review. Recommend us to a friend. Send us a podcast that you're interested in. Send us the name of an author that you'd like us to interview. We are interested in all these things, and we're always glad to help answer your questions on paganism, polytheism, animism, or shamanism. So make sure you send us uh, those suggestions and insights. So this was a poem titled Veles from my friend Margot. I first heard the call of Veles in a field near the woods, knowing that my ancestors drove cattle and sheep, and that Veles was the lord of these things. I followed Veles to the underworld and hung a skull on my shrine. I found a spiritual sister, and we called Veles, Veles, to bring us magic and divination. I bought a black hat in my travels, and I went to see my sister one time when we met flesh to flesh. Without knowing why, I sent her the hat later, and soon after learned that she had died. Veles, I will always find you watching. You are not dead, for I still see my sister in my memories and in the foggy morning, and I know she walks with you. Veles, Veles, I call again, lest the cattle of me and my kinsmen bring me the riches of the underworld, magic and divination, and when I die, I will find you there, and we shall live. <laughs>